spaceships are smaller than string and living in your brain. The worldwide conspiracy has discovered there is an even bigger conspiracy. Yes, yes, no. Everything you know is wrong. Hello and never goodbye and don't look behind you, but it's me and I'm with you again to look at the arcane wonders of our wonderful world. Everything you know is wrong. Well, put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride. I am the narrator, the voice that guides the blind, following up with your ears, be your mind, and allow me to take you back on four feet time to explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't further down the line. education because I'm interested in everything <laughs> and I thought well if I can be an educator um, then I can still do everything hmm. and then I thought well then I'll be an English teacher because I love to write and read and um, but in the end you, you said it beautifully I don't know I mean I I'm this right there with you I I had this belief um, that if if people could be critical thinkers like not just go simplistically we would have a we'd have <laughs> this is where I went um, this is where I still am, sadly, or happily. I don't know. I thought we would have peace on earth. Like, that's mm. really where I was. And I, what I want to say was, it's, it's still where I am. I, I, I guess I, I went to the past tense just because this has been a little bit of a hard day. But it's mm. not just today. It's not like anything that happened today um, in terms of the aftermath of the bombing or um, what's happened in our Senate is evidence of extreme lack of critical thought. Um mm. It's just that it's been going on. You know, we have been we we are a nation that has been um, responsible for a lot of death under the message of we're going to create peace or justice because we're not because we're not we've not become a society of real critical thinkers. That's what I keep, I mean, um, and so that's so I so I applaud you for that and thank you for that work. I think that if people can just look at the complexity of a situation, yeah. and and. Gender roles are one of those, and Absolutely. and it's the one that's at the forefront right now. Yeah, which is which is great because it's it's helping model our ability to to once again be present and think critically. Mm-hmm. It's true. So, did you hear um, Derek Austin's uh, Jackie Batten's interview of, of Derek Austin? I didn't. I bring it up. It was beautiful. It was in um, 
lessons from a radical model and um she was talking to him about a few things that you've actually brought up um and he identified i think he well he, he i heard him say gay so i'm thinking he identifies as queer gay mm-hmm. black man and he um and he spoke about his passion of drag queens, which I have a, a number of friends, and that, that seems to be a, a very enjoyable topic. I don't have a television, so I, I, I don't see um, drag, um, what's the name of the show? Drag Race. Drag Race, thank you. Mm. But uh, Derek was talking about his, Jackie asked him, what, who are your favorite drag queens? And he talked about the one, he said he was naming all the different ones he loved so much, and in particular the ones with beards and, and who didn't shave their legs. And who, who, and I, I so appreciated that conversation because in, in kind of linked to what you're saying, it, 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 it not, not so much forces us, but it invites us into this world of saying, is that a man? Is that a woman? Is that a man trying to be a woman? Is that a man trying to be a woman who is fine being a man? Like, I love that because it's like, what? It's like pushing and, and, uh, and, and, asking um, the viewer, the witness, to say, I'm not going to pretend that I'm not going from gender to gender because that's not really what this is about. It's about, it's about this, this um, expansive view. And that was really great. So that, if, you, if you have a chance, to, you, can, you, can, you can access the interview. He talked quite a bit about that and his... his um, and then the other thing that he talked about that connected with, I think, you talked about the importance of having a community, mm. and that he talked quite a bit about that. And, then, and so that he wasn't so isolated in his world in terms of his identity as a writer, as an artist, and also as, as, a, as a man, as a gay black man. He started um, finding other people like him, as he said it, and then he found their, their blogs, he mm-hmm. found their, we, uh, their websites, and then he started connecting with them, and that opened up his whole world, and, and then... Um, his book was published, and, and he's, he seems to be doing well with it. So that was really um, an enjoyable listen. I just love that story because it just reminded me of growing up in Manhattan mm-hmm. and being exposed to people like that all the time Just and having that just be part of the, the water that I swam in, mm-hmm. essentially. So that it was, for me, it was actually very easy to, to embrace all of that. Mm-hmm. So ambiguity is is actually the the territory I grew up in. Mm-hmm. So, but I know that that's unusual in this country. And it, and it causes a, a degree of vulnerability, which is why I assume that people to f- stay safe um, find a, a, a you know one one end of a of a, a, a spectrum. I don't even like the idea of a spectrum because <laughs> spectrum a spectrum to me is like a, a path that connects two two binary points. And if right. and if to binary, that's re- re- redundant. Two is bi- binary. So two. But anyway, so so you know what I mean. So I don't know what the, I think the language, as we, it's finding the language. Maybe that's, again, going back to the, your goal. Or creating new metaphors, of, like creating a yeah, circle rather yeah. than a, a pole. I mean, the invitation if, for us to be critical. If you need something like that to, to, to conceptualize it. Yeah, I, I don't know. What, what, do you, what do you think, Emerson? I mean, in terms of... Um, the whole other layer on top of everything we're talking about is trying to figure out the language. Like, we might get it, but mm. then the next step is, like, then we have to articulate it. Mm. Or not, I guess. Maybe not. I mean, yeah. I think, I guess what I'm thinking as I'm hearing you both talk is that to some extent, we don't need to, we don't need to do anything with it, you know? If, if there's somebody having a, having a specific gender experience, that's great. There doesn't need to be anything 
It doesn't, we don't actually need to necessarily label it or understand it or even really assimilate it into ourselves. We can just kind of, you know, just be present with the moment of that. But that works with people like us. But what about when you, we share this world with tons and tons of people who are, view the world in very black and white terms and are very polarized and their personalities, their nature is to be polarized and they commit violence and they marginalize the experience of other people and make other people unsafe. How do we deal with that? I mean, you're, you're I mean, an educator, you're, you're a political activist. These are things I know that you think about and deal with a lot. Um, so it seems like art- being able to articulate these things and communicate these things is important. I think actually what's more exciting for me is the idea that people can be, I, I think I push, I'm continuing to push on this idea of resilience um, for people in the dominant group and the fact that those people, you know, if, if people were more um, okay with being uncomfortable, then I think less people would be killed. Right. But I don't think these people are comfortable with that. They're not. But, but. I mean, for example, I can't necessarily assuage someone's discomfort with logos. You know, I actually, that has to There's be... There's nothing we can say that's going to change anybody else. I have, I mean, I, you know, I think I'm, in one way, I'm, I guess I, I seem like someone who could speak to this, but in another way, I really am, um, I really am like a writer in a sense, yeah. so that... It's paradoxical. Like, I... Well, I would also say that, like, I don't necessarily come to this moment with my own histories with violence and um, and uh, work at uh, disentangling myself from the violence that um, has been perpetrated against me and people that I care about. So I I think that's a different, maybe a different conversation and a longer conversation about um, the ways in which we could work toward. Um, providing safety for those most vulnerable in the trans community. But actually, I think that would be a great conversation that cis people or non-trans people could have together. I think it would be fabulous if you all hung out somewhere with maybe under the guidance of some trans people and talked about ways that you could maybe um, dismantle some of the structures that make it unsafe for people who are non-binary. I think that would be awesome. Um, I also think that you know, you all have access to certain spaces that I don't have access to. So, like, you know, I'm sure just in the ways in the ways that um, white people will say offensive things about folks of color to me because I'm essentially white. That um, in that in that same regard, I imagine non-trans people or um, you know cis people or even straight people uh, might say things to you that would be. I would consider offensive, but I can't access that in the same way. Um, so I think it's really exciting when cis people want to work for justice in this sense because you do have more access than I do. So I don't know, actually. I think this is more of a conversation that would be cool if you all were able to have um, in communities that were uh, hoping to make the same kinds of changes that I am hoping to make. The intersectionalities are incredible because what I'm starting to learn as I get older is um, that age now is a whole nother piece because mm-hmm. I sit now with younger people. Um, it just happened to me when I was, <laughs> I was arrested at the TD Bank 
I'm laughing at it because this whole process has been wild. But um, so at the TD Bank, because the you know the uh, pipeline, and it's been going on. And this whole process uh, has turned into um, restorative justice. That's mm-hmm. going to meet in about three weeks process. And and I, I find myself sitting in in rooms with people uh, younger than I am, people in power who are younger than I am. They're not at all interested, and I, and I, if I, I just don't, I don't say anything because I, they don't want to hear about it. Mm. And, and to some extent, one was sort of, and this is somebody who's facilitating this process. That's going to one day, uh, I hope, in the near future, when it will be done, some t- sort of organized restorative process, restorative justice process. And they really don't know what to do with us, so it's turning into restorative justice instead of actually putting us in prison. Because who are we? You know, we just we were trespassing. Anyway, it becomes they don't really know what to do, so they're trying to fit it into something that's called restorative justice. But it's opened up this whole world to me with with people who are uh, in the field who are half my age, who are they don't even realize it, but they're mocking um, feminists um, who are wearing big floppy hats because they probably never saw a picture of Bella Abzuger. They don't have the history that I, like mm-hmm. they don't they don't know why these women are wearing floppy hats and wearing fl- like they they don't they don't know. Mm-hmm. So then I end up feeling silence because I'm although I'm able bodied. Um, some might say I look straight. I don't even know, but I could pass for straight. Mm-hmm. I could pass for. I certainly am privileged. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm white, mm-hmm. um, but they don't have any. But I'm com- completely marginalized because I'm older. Mm-hmm. And and it's and this may sound really weird, but it, t- it took. A, I like. I never really thought that was ever going to happen. Right. <laughs> and then when it happens to you, kind of go. Oh, now I have another layer of silencing that totally. I've now just. You know what do I do? So the intersectionality is really interesting. Everything that you bring up. You know, in terms of. Um, all the different identities that you just shared that that you hold, that mm-hmm. we hold, that what can we sometimes access and not, and then sometimes actually in the moment realize that we can't access them anymore. Like you've sure. had that experience, like you think you can access something, and then you're in a situation. It's like, oh, I can't access that. Or sure. uh, so it's it is it's remarkably fluid, which is why circle back. I think what you're saying, at least if I'm understanding, very important thing that we do is to try to in some way collectively build a society of 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 critical thinkers who are comfortable in in this fluidity, the ambiguity, and not have a need to to box others for their own comfort. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I study a lot of um, Levinasian theory. It's it's a it's a, a project that I'm currently working on. But essentially, Levinas was writing during uh, World War II, and he was a Jewish man who was um, in a, a prison war camp. And um, most of his family was killed uh, by the Nazi regime at the time while he was in the camp. And while he was in the camp, he was starting. He was a student of philosophy. He had studied Heidegger and Hegel and Husserl. He'd studied with them. I believe all three. I might be wrong about that, but I definitely he studied with Heidegger, and um, he essentially was questioning why. Um, well, you know, fam- very famously, Heidegger um, was a Nazi sympathizer, or you know, actually a, a very directly supporter, supporter, arguably a supporter. Um, and so uh, Levinas was like, "How could how could this guy be my teacher? Like, how how could I have been so excited about these philosophies? And what does this mean for philosophy in general?" And um, Levinas decided to develop a philosophy uh, counter to that, which was to consider that. Um, there are no heroes, was his theory. There are no heroes. And that ethics is the first philosophy. But one of the tenets of that philosophy is that each of us holds the infinite inside them. And that infinite is as once, you know, is at once so powerful 
and so decentering and so scary that the only thing we know to do is to either make the other person like ourselves, assimilate it, he says, turn it into a figure, or literally kill it. That's what, that's what he said. So, and by turning it into a figure, we kill it. So basically, that's the only thing we tend to know to do with something we cannot master. And the truth is what you're describing with gender variance is that, you know, it is unmasterable. We are learning that it is fluid and immense, and that is unnerving as a people because we are we have been brought up with bureaucracy and structures in order for things to function effectively and we imagine things to be true when maybe they're not true so carrie edwards once said you know once you basically i'm, I'm paraphrasing but once you know what else isn't true once you dismantle that binary what else isn't true and it's a scary place i think in some ways so levinas is essentially saying that the only way to deal with that uh, with that um, uh, experience of the infinite, is to embrace the radical other, is to embrace alterity. And the whole thing in its entire complexity. Yes, and it's not just people we would assume to be other that are other. It's like everyone everything, is other. Everything. It's everyone. Because everyone is other in somebody's eyes. Well, and Potentially. I, I, there's a, every, like literally everyone is other. So not even subjectively or objectively, like, According to Levinas, everyone is other. So you are other to me. You are other to me. Um, and it's if, if a great example is if you think about walking down a, down a city block in the evening or something, and maybe there's no one around, and you're just walking down the block, and another person appears on the block. Um, you are called to be responsible to that person even before you are conscious of that response. So, and a response might be taking out one's keys or a response might be going to the other side of the street or a response might be planning the head nod that that one will do you know should i nod up or down should i smile that's a response and so we are actually responsible to the other regardless of whether or not we are conscious of that response well the, the language that you used of being responsible to the other is a foreign language to me, but mm -hmm. I, I think I get what you mean. Yeah. We have a response. We have a conditioned response to everything that we encounter uh, unless we haven't experienced something. Well, Levinas is particularly obsessed with the, with the person, so he really didn't want us to think about it like, um, like encountering anything other than a, than a person because mm -hmm. what he was trying to do was create a system that genocide wouldn't occur in. He was really trying to figure out how we could be ethical for each other. And one of the things that I think about a lot is I work with a meditation teacher who's um, an anti-racist activist, and uh, she works primarily with people who have chronic pain and disability and things like that. And I work with her in those areas for myself, and it's great. But she does this this exercise every almost every time she has a gathering, which is she gets everyone into kind of a U shape, and she will say different... Um, I guess I would say maybe different marginalizations that we might live with, different areas where we feel silenced, like you were saying earlier. And so what's cool about that exercise is, you know, maybe she'll, she'll mention ability. And so on one end of the room, you're someone, the, if you stand on one end of the room, uh, then you're identifying as being someone who doesn't deal with any kind of disability. You feel fully able. And then on the other side of the room is, yes, I am dealing with very limited capacities in certain ways and I identify as having a disability or many and then there's the whole spectrum in between 
And once we do that exercise, what's kind of exciting is to see that everyone at some point, or most everyone, not everyone, but most everyone at some point falls on one point of the spectrum or the other. And I think to your question about how to engage, um, how to engage people in the conversation of ending suffering, essentially, for trans people, and again, I always want to say for trans women of color, but for for all people who are suffering, um, one of the best ways to go about it is to identify the places in which we, as individuals, have felt uh, silenced or suffering or what have you. And so in that, there becomes a facility to actually uh, engage in empathy and to facilitate a wider conversation about um, you know social engagement. But what's cool is we do actually spend a lot of time unconsciously um, in those spaces and it's nice to become conscious of the ways in which maybe sometimes I have access and sometimes I don't and you know I don't know so I can use the times in which I do have access to provide further access for other people it's very it's very important it's very important work I mean because it's about empathy and I when I think about the word responsibility I've, I've always looked at it as a word the ability to respond. So mm-hmm. I have responsibility. So I have this ability to respond. What am I going to do? How do I, what do I do in this moment? And, um, and I, and the primary work that I do with teachers, because now I'm working more with teachers and principals than I am directly in schools with students. Although I'm hoping that will change soon as I'm missing kids and I want to get back into the schools more directly. Um, I would say vast majority of my conversations with, with teachers and principals is about exactly that, where, where to, to, to have conversations with them about what are the parts of you that f- have felt, felt wounded and injured? Um, first of all, because you want to honor and, and try to love yourself around that and recognize that if you don't, that wounding is going gonna, is gonna to manifest in a way within your work with kids that's not going to be very healthy. It's also going to allow you to, to love you know, those others, those students. It's a very powerful work because many times I've worked with white, male, identified um, teachers and principals who said, you know, what good can I do? I'm working with all these, these, you know, diversity of students and I'm white and I'm male and what do I know? And I would say things like, well, I thought you told me the story about you were raised by a single mom and you rarely had breakfast. And didn't you remember that story about the poverty piece? Oh, yeah, but that was, that was nothing. I said, well, if you're going to say that that's nothing, then I'm assuming you're going to go to one of the students who didn't have breakfast that morning and say it didn't matter that you didn't have breakfast. And so those conversations are, are very powerful because, and then they start, and sometimes they actually, it's so, so visceral for them. They start to cry about mm. that. Is it okay for me to feel the sadness of my childhood of not having food? And then to try to heal that so that I can love myself and the student who didn't have breakfast. And around all the other issues that we've talked about this morning, about how do you bring yourself fully, lovingly, to, um, in your ability to respond with, with love. And I think that's where, where you were talking, I was thinking about how it's very Buddhist in a way, but you know, Buddhism has the vocabulary for notice and, and to, to love it within yourself and in the world. Mm-hmm. And you have to be aware of it. And writing is such a powerful vehicle. Do, do you have a something that you would share from sure. Postbox? Sure. Do you? Um, this is my first book, so I don't, I haven't read from it for a while, but I do enjoy always um, engaging with this book. But I guess I should say, too, that um, this project um, has to do, this is a documentary 
poetics project essentially and um, I was uh, feeling uncomfortable about a move I made to LA um, from a more rural place and uh, I I grew up in a place like Los Angeles and um, I just kind of hate hot seat belts in the summer and I hate strip malls and um, I hate you know um, just gigantic parking lots. Those have always been things that have made me uncomfortable. And I, part of my work in the world, I think, and as a creative person, is to engage with, with my discomfort. Um, it's, it's, I guess, a theme of what we're talking about this morning, but it's also a theme of my, a tenet of my work. And so uh, this text was really all about me engaging with that discomfort rather than trying to banish it. I wanted to dive in. And so I was driving past this parking lot for uh, during the work week pretty much every day and there were just hundreds of thousands of birds at this parking lot and I could not figure out what was going why were there so many birds at this parking lot and also like you know what's going on here I really wanted to I wanted to love I wanted to love this kind of landscape in the way that I found myself loving a more quote-unquote natural landscape. I also wanted to interrogate ideas of what is natural and what is wild, um, especially as it relates to essentialism with regards to like queerness and whatnot. You know, what the ideas of what is natural is often used against queer communities. Um, you know, so I wanted to interrogate what is what what is wild, what is natural, and um, so I started to go sit. I would park in the parking lot and watch the birds and just. Contemplate what was going on. There were literally like hundreds. It's not. A, it was just so many. It was almost impossible not to notice. And there were certain. Uh, I I did see that other people were posting it online. It was kind of a zeitgeist for the birds at that moment. They were all digging this big parking lot. And um, after sitting there for about, you know, maybe two weeks, there were all these signs that were erected that I happened to notice on my way home. And you know, I was sort of fascinated by this because the the big box was you know, empty. It was basically a vacant lot with a big box store that was just sitting dead in, in it. So I was, I was shocked that someone would go to the effort to pay for signage, but the sign said no trespassing or loitering, feeding birds or wildlife. And I was like, okay, I got to figure out what's going on here. This is, I'm fascinated. So, um, and I guess all the other thing I'll say is that the title ghost box is actually the term that folks use or in that industry that is used for a big box store that is no longer, that is basically gone bankrupt or is no longer active. Um, and um, so that's, that's where the title came from. Um, I am ruminating on emblems and underbellies and I watch a plume of birds lift from the lot. Birds bat my car, the sky. I stop. Hundreds of gulls mix midair with pigeons, eclipsing adjacent neon signs, stoplights, sun. I pull off the road and I look into the city. In response, the city writes a shrub growing against concrete. It writes in blues and deep red. It writes, we want to be beautiful too. Emily, I am becoming a bird, but nobody knows. Sharp, hot, painful. A dilapidated big box looms over McDonald's and a small university aiming to provide sound education through the liberating message of Jesus Christ. The building's parking lot is walled off and empty, save for a handful of downcast shrubs, shadows, and several trees fit small in slots of green and brown space. 
Right now, there is a mother with hands on her hips, watching a baby learn to ride a bike in tiny circles through the birds. It's late afternoon. They are beyond the railing, beyond the new signs for no trespassing or loitering, feeding birds or wildlife. Past diapers strung along a thin strip of protective orange railing, I see a car careen from nowhere. The car parks at the far end. Someone pops the trunk and lifts a rake from inside. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I shake his hand. The person says they are hoping I am a producer for a reality show. I am not. I am a poet, I say. He says the show should be called Home Depot, the real story, gesturing the words onto an imaginary airborne marquee. I interrupt him to ask about the birds. He shields his eyes and leans back onto his car. It's a woman, he says, smiling. Emily, I want to be aloft with you sometime. And then there's a cuss word, but I'm not going to say it. You can be creative, too. Okay. She is supposedly dying or something like that, the person with the rake explains. Cancer. Now shards of glass, car engines, truck engines, chewed popsicle sticks, a screw, feathers, fronds, used condoms, handprints, tongue prints, and feet are her backdrop. So that's essentially where we go. That's the beginning of um, that's the beginning of this story. It's it's essentially a ghost story. Um, that, that's kind of why the title works. Um, uh, I'm trying to figure out who Emily is and why she's feeding the birds and what's going on and. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I hope that it's beautiful. Um, that's always, that was my aim with this project because I did want it to, uh, I did want to fall in love in a way. So I think I did. It, I could, I could feel viscerally the quality of, of, of your, your describing beauty, describing what is beautiful. Mm Mm-hmm. Particularly, that first piece that you wrote just hit me. I, I, I can't remember where it is in there, but I was, um, you, you brought yourself into it um, a couple places that were really profound. One, the line opened up with, I, I, I used to, or as a child, I used mm-hmm. to live in, do you, do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? Where you reveal that you used to live in a very urban, dirty, grimy harsh place yeah. and and kicked things i mean it was evident from the language that you used that with what you just said that you 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 came from that space and you didn't like it yeah um then it's also very real and humorous where you said where you said i i don't have time to talk to you because i'm going across the street to buy a sex toy that <laughs> yeah. was great that was really great <laughs> and um and then there is an explanation in the in the book as well about something to the effect of um it was a it was um it was a, a large box store, right, that was closed. Yes. And Home Depot bought it and then tried to sell it <clears> when the community stopped Home Depot from opening. So it became this this dilapidated, vacant, large, right, lot yes. that this woman, Emily, then turned into a bird refuge. Yes. So it's a very layered story. And then you, like, insert yourself in it. And then and in that respect, it is a bit of a memoir. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, I, I guess everything I do, I, I, I'm interested too. And I guess when we were talking about memoir versus autobiography earlier, my definition is flipped. And actually I've met a lot of people who, I don't know, maybe it's a West Coast, East Coast thing yeah. or something, but like my definition is that autobiography is the one that can hold many stories and memoir is the one that generally holds one. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I think of all my work as autobiographical pro- 
projects essentially. Oh, okay. So then, yeah, it was. It was a documentary project. Okay. I, I showed up and there, and there it was. And actually, the weird thing is when I when I finished this project, it it had been vacant for ten years. And the, pretty much the minute that I finished this project and it went out to get published, it it was purchased by Goodwill. And now it's a Goodwill, and it's a big kind of nice one, you know, it's sort of fancy. And I, I was able to put some of the books in the Goodwill <laughs> as kind of a thank you for being this space for this project, Wow, which is cool. We've got uh, about 40 seconds to, to wrap up. Any final words? I guess I'll say that this, that if you do are interested in this text, um, it's for sale right now on the website that is the press, so on Timeless Infinite Light. Dot com. You can get it for half price. Do you, mm. you said you had a new book or not? I, um, I will, actually, in the next year. We'll, okay. we'll be waiting. Yeah, thank you. Emerson Whitney, thank you so much. This thank has been you. great. This has been a wonder, really, really wonderful conversation. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Thank you, Carla, too. Always. Carla Haas Moskowitz. And this has been the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. Thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week. Everybody, I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour, where we dive into the heart of things and explore new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous and crazy world we live in today, and getting crazier every day. <laughs> we have nods of, <laughs> of agreement in the room. <laughs> so... We have a guest in the studio, actually two. We have um, Emerson Whitney, who's a new Goddard faculty in the uh, Bachelor of Fine Arts writing program. It's true. And how new are you? I am, this is my first uh, semester. Wow. So, yeah. And we have Carla Haas Moskowitz in the studio as well. She's the host of the famous ethereal the floating particle <laughs> the particle <laughs> the floating possibilities the, it's the infamous <laughs> the, actually the infamous the possibilities, possibilities of the floating particle the dust that's floating around us oops is our infinite yeah you can, you can yeah it's, i have it's, to give you a little more volume there okay yeah it's it's early in the morning and I'm, I'm apparently as under the weather as you guys. Yes. <laughs> There's been a, a Goddardly crud going around. I've been yeah. calling it the yeah. Goddardly crud. It's been a, it's something that that um, 
has permeated the campus and possibly beyond. One of my um, fellow, no, it was actually my program director emailed me and said there was um, one person, I think from the facilities crew, that was uh, manning the help desk because everybody else only, was only sick. one person who wasn't sick. Yeah, yeah. 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 In, in the BFA faculty, we were joking that it was Goddard kennel cough. <laughs> that is kind of really funny. funny. That's absolutely correct. Oh, so just coughing. It's but uh, it's a it's this it's the same symptom we had the same. It's like it yeah. starts with this very the seed of a thickness in the throat, and then for me it was like fever, bam, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then it, it passes through you like a freight train. Yes. Quickly. That's yeah. that's yeah. good. Yeah. It's yeah. good. You don't need those two-week-long ones. No, but I, I I took it a little bit extra time to make sure that I wasn't spreading it, so I feel much better. Oh, that's good. I'm probably spreading it. Oh, awesome. I'm, well, we'll do it I'm again. I'm sharing it with everyone, well, yes. Maybe the second time through, it'll be better. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great point. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll... However, I, I w- is, you know, illness um, is, is a beautiful gift in a lot of ways because it slows you down a bit. And That's not true. that I was particularly fast these days, but I didn't leave my bed and I, I watched the rain fall and stop and fall again and stop. And then your, your book came in the mail, mm. a Ghost Box. So. That was a treat. Oh, that's lovely. Glad you got to enjoy it in the rain. I did. I, I, I was inside watching the rain. But, mm-hmm. um, but I did. But this morning, I don't know what it was like here, but there was. I went outside actually and sat in my deck and watched the sun come up, mm. the clouds passing above me, sort of like a Japanese movie. You know how that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it rained again. Yeah. <laughs> a Japanese woodcut movie. Yeah, one of those. You know, I was like, <laughs> yeah, so, so I was waiting for you know samurais, but instead, <laughs> um, more clouds and more rain. Mm-hmm. It's that season. Uh, and then uh, drove in and bit by bit, then the news started permeating my brain. Mm-hmm. And but anyway, I digress. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, Emerson, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm wondering. I don't know much about you. Yeah, like, I hardly know anything totally about fair. you. Yeah. So, <laughs> I'm wondering if I should let you introduce yourself, or maybe Carla. Do you know? Emerson well enough to introduce her? You her read her book. I, I, What's that? Her, him, they. Her, him, they. they yeah. Yes. Yeah. Let's talk. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll talk about all that stuff too, yeah. because this is going to be a show about those um, in-between spaces. I can, I can, I can introduce okay. those aspects. Um, so uh, my name is Emerson Whitney. I am a, a writer, um, in the creative nonfiction genre, but I'm also a poet, and um, I my pronouns are they or he, and um, I'm I identify as being gender variant a gender variant human being, a trans person, and um, because that is my identity, often I'm asked to um, to speak on the intersections between transness and writing, which I am overjoyed to do because there are many many incredible writers um, who are working in what is the new, considered a new genre of trans literature. Um, But at the same time, I refute the idea that my writing is exclusively trans. So much of my work uh, has nothing to do with gender (laughs) and has much more to do with, um, you know, the nature of being. Um, Or I love one of my favorite definitions of poetry and creative or and theory actually is um the, it it is the thinking of being 
So um, in my in my mode of, of engagement with with writing and with thinking, um, I hope to at once herald my uh, the communities that I come from, but to also be able to um, write toward being in a larger way. So are you writing fiction or are you... Not at all. Not at all. No, I, I can't. I don't even think like that. Um, I've never You're telling it like it is? <laughs> um, <laughs> like something is? Um, the, one of my students asked uh, a question this week about kind of... Um, I, can't, I guess I often talk about the subjective I and they were curious what I meant by that subjectivity. Um, especially because in the realm of creative nonfiction, we're also, we're, we're, um, considered to be writing the truth. Um, but you know, of course in this mode, there is no necessary truth. Um, we're all subjective. So I would say I'm, I'm maybe telling it like it is for me. (laughs) Oh, so you're telling your story and the stories that you're seeing swirling around you. Um, I come in relation to you. Hey, I'm, we could say that for sure. Um, I come from a lineage of of really tremendous um, autobiography uh, focused sort of centric women writers. Um, and the, is this in your family? No, oh. in in my I guess creative lineage. Uh-huh. Um, and they really I, I've heard different definitions of this, but for me, there's a difference between memoir and autobiography, and part of the difference is that autobiography can be um, my story or a story that utilizes my subjective eye as its lens, but there can be multiple areas for that lens to inhabit. Um, So it doesn't necessarily mean I'm telling my story or something. It's more like I am telling the story of my relationship to a parking lot in East Los Angeles, or I'm telling this story in relationship to my exploration into um, Emmanuel Levinas and ideas of radical alterity, or I'm telling um, a story in relationship to my relationship to the color blue or something like that. Um, That it, it doesn't necessarily mean there's like a narrative arc and a longer form narrative about like myself, I guess I would say. So it's so it's very inclusive. Sure. You're you're yeah. including all the stories of of all your interrelationships with the universe around you. Yeah. As it evolves and devolves and yeah goes through all those mm-hmm. kind of crazy wondrous iterations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think again you're using a lot of um, terms that we bring our own definitions to. Mm-hmm. So the, like the passing of those fluid clouds overhead such as life, such as gender, such as... In reading Ghost Box last night and, and seeing that maybe it would have a memoir quality more than an autobiography, mm-hmm. it was like you entered um, Emerson's life at this, this moment in time mm-hmm. and in this space, and the whole thing was incredibly fluid. Mm-hmm. So the characters, their identities how they positioned themselves, how you positioned yourself, your conversation, how you moved from something that looked like a more conventional poem when you talked to Emily, mm-hmm. one of the characters, to pulling back. It was like, I felt like it was a camera lens that went in and out. Mm. And, um, and, and I, I don't know if this is what you meant, um, but when you described the difference between autobiography and memoir, that's what I thought of, because mm. more conventionally, one thinks, well, an autobiography, like the autobiography, you know, of this person. Mm-hmm. I'm telling my story, and it has a chronology 
to off mm-hmm. into it. Mm-hmm. Memoir almost never does. I mean, you start almost from the center and then it spirals out. Mm-hmm. Or it's, does that make sense? Like you, you could tell a story based on this moment in time and then mm-hmm. it pulls back. Mm-hmm. And then you can then from there think, oh, I think I understand this person's life. Mm-hmm. But through that moment or that, that idea. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so anyway, I don't know if that's making sense, but that's how I know you in my sh- yeah. just through the book I read and our, our our conversations. So then my question is, um, and I have a bumper sticker on my refrigerator <laughs> that says "Reality is when it happens to you," and I've had that mm-hmm. bumper sticker for most of my life because it it, it encapsulates right. how I feel about when when people want to debate what's true. Right. If it happens to you, it's true. So. So knowing that, and people are are looking to you for um, guidance because now you are faculty. Mm-hmm. There's a power differential now. Yeah, whether true. we want, even though it's Goddard, yes. you're now you walk in, and these students are looking to you. Mm-hmm. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Could that shift from student? Because you were a student. I was. I was here? a student until from 2008 to uh, 2011. Okay, and then and you're here, here at Goddard. Here at Goddard. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, this is been, great. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh. And and even if even if you weren't, it's still you're still coming as faculty. But it's yes. a, another little bit of a little bit of a of a twist, being you know. Oh, for I'm sure. sure, a little bit. You know, coming in and now. It's, were you at? Were you at? The, you were, I was at this exact residency. Yeah. I okay. was um, IBA two at the time. Okay. So here IBA you IBA two. Yeah, which is now UGP two. So IBA is many the, yeah people on my show. My listeners don't necessarily know what any of those letters. <laughs> yeah, mean. I didn't really either. It's more. It's I guess it's the independent study program. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so undergraduate. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's the interdisciplinary Bachelor of Arts. Is that what the I is? And then um, that makes sense. And then uh, undergraduate uh, program UGP has two cohorts because it's our largest program at Goddard. So mm-hmm. it's one and two. Mm-hmm. But you were a student in that, uh, in that interdisciplinary Bachelor of Arts is within the UGP. So a lot of it was familiar, perhaps even some of the faculty could have been very oh, familiar. Yes. Yeah, so, yes. Yeah, so there was that familiarity and now you're faculty. So that fluidity of then of moving from student to faculty um, and we we could resist we. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we could we uh, I don't know that pronoun. I'm deciding everyone. We? We. I think <laughs> the we, royal we. We. <laughs> We is, we. Is, the, is probably the only safe pronoun yeah. there is. <laughs> I, or the uh, could say well it's power is very fluid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So how are you could you talk a little bit about how that's living around you right now or in you? Absolutely. Um, I would say that, you know, my experience as a Goddard student was really, um, it was really wonderful in the sense that I didn't, I, 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 um, exist successfully in non-traditional education and in education in which, um, I have a coach kind of rather than maybe, um, a traditional, um, like lecture style professor. Um, and I teach elsewhere, um, mostly in Los Angeles, where I am actually a lec- like a, a more of a lecturer or um, someone who stands at the front of the classroom and wears like pants that are pressed, you know. Um, but here, I feel like I am able to fall into the role that I am most comfortable in, which is which is more of like a writing coach um, or a guide. Uh, those are the words that feel more accurate for me that I can, I am, my, my pedagogy or my, my experience as an educator is really that I truly believe every person 
that I'm working with is coming with the glass full. I'm not filling the glass. Um, it's not my job to fill their fill it. Um, it is my job to support them in their exploration um, and their their learning journey, whatever that is. So I don't particularly feel hugely powerful um, here in a sense, but I agree with you in what you're saying that there's definitely a, a shift in my role. Um, and I welcome that. I actually, um, I really do love a, a lot of the faculty I've known, I have known them since I was a student. And um, my transition to faculty has been quite seamless. I'm, I'm actually a little surprised by it. Um, I just moved into the faculty dorm and hung out with everybody in the evenings like we do. And um, I have a really wonderful group of students that I'm excited to participate with and um, new colleagues that I, that I didn't know that I'm excited to work with. Um, I think, it's, I think it, this model of education is really cool because we kind of get to be at camp and I, you know, get to experience uh, workshops of other faculty that I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I got to go to an art and activism workshop yesterday, um, led by one of the other faculty members. Um, I tried to do something like that every day um, because it's still, an, I still get an education when I'm here, even as faculty, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. which is lovely. So just for clarification, it's an unusual setup because the BFA, uh, BFAW program shares a residency with the UGP so it's it's so you you know you get to go to attend um, as faculty and the students get to attend workshops from both programs right so you have this enormous spectrum of of topics and, and people so Arissa White is one of one of your new colleagues yes she's somebody who would be wonderful to have on the show and her it's book true. came in the mail the same I, I she's uh, um, up for the a lambda literary she award. is and um so anyway, I uh, that book came as well. So maybe we can grab her before she leaves. Maybe we can. Is she, is she already leave? She's already gone. She's already gone. Maybe She's we'll already gone. Her in. So, um, so how, how? I'm wondering how have some of the styles? Um, she's a poet, mm -hmm. very powerful poet. How are some of the styles of of your colleagues' poet poems um, maybe influence you or help shape or juxtap when juxtaposition? How would you talk about your work? in the context of their work. Because mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking if I were a student kind of moving around, you know, mm -hmm. like a, a bee mm -hmm. <laughs> going from flower to flower, um, that's kind of what residencies are like. Mm -hmm. What would I say and what do you, how would you speak to that? I'm a big fan of Arisa's work in general. Um, I read Her as Nest a long time ago um, and actually was, I taught some poems from her work um, for a class that I was teaching um, or co-teaching. And um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm a big fan, like I say, uh, we did, we got to do a really exciting thing uh, when we performed or read together this week where we decided that I would read uh, work that I'm working on but I would pause and she would read her work in the pause so we would we kind of collaborated on a way to make a new thing rather than to read our singular works we, we made a new thing um, and I, I'm so excited to collaborate with her. We've already decided when we get home, we'll, we both are on the West Coast, that we will uh, start writing together, um, which is a delight whenever a writer wants to uh, engage in collaboration. It's nice because it is such a singular art form at times. Um, but I love her work. Um, can you talk mm -hmm. about her work? Yeah, I can a little bit. Because our listeners, yeah. of course, don't have a clue 
any about her work? She generally writes uh, verse poetry. So um, she the, her new collection of poems I haven't actually yet been able to read, um, but I heard much of it when we were performing together. And um, her she's it, she excels at the lyric. Um, she takes on themes of queerness, uh, blackness, um, womanness, and she uses uh, her verse to both sort of stun and um, enter into silence and to lull and to excite. Um, I think that she has a tremendous dexterity with uh, the way that she writes. So that's, that's what I would say. But I would also check out her book. Can, do you remember any, any lines? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Okay. But the, the name of the book is um, You're the Most Beautiful Thing That Happened. Yeah. Wow. And she actually has a project called You're the Most Beautiful Thing That Happened. Mm-hmm. And it's a hashtag. So if anyone wanted to check it out mm-hmm. on social media, they could actually look um, via that hashtag and um, it's uh, I don't want to speak too much to it without Arisa because I will likely butcher uh, the framework of this project but it's a really exciting a lot project. of that happens on the show sure. anyway, so. <laughs> the butchering. but it has to do with um, <laughs> queer black and brown folks and um, uh, encouraging visibility and celebration within those communities one other thing I'd like to say about her that when I, I, I saw her read <clears throat> a, a poetry b- month, so mm-hmm. I think it was exactly two years from this this residency, she and a group of BFA uh, faculties uh, read at the library mm-hmm. in Montpelier. And uh, Gary Luima, our dean of enrollment, and who was also a poet, yeah. a very good poet, and I went. Anyway, she, she at that point she was reading quite a bit from a collection that she wrote about her father. She had this estranged... Oh, that's great. I have, I have quite a few. When I, I did the MFAW program here, and I, I wrote a lot about my dad. It was like therapy. But uh-huh. um, stories about their fathers. Yeah. And I, I did. Um, I, I think what I, what I wanted to ask you sort of as a follow-up to the question about mm-hmm. your changing role, mm-hmm. the fluidity of your role, since this mm-hmm. feels like a... There's a lot of fluidity in your in your presence. Mm. Um, I think the beauty of having you on faculty is that there are going to be a number of students who are going to look to you for um, gu- gu- a special kind of guidance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's really important in, in education, that we have a diversity mm-hmm. of faculty because whether we want to or not, we're seen as people who are in power that know something that maybe the student doesn't know. Right. Um, which... You know, I mean, you're paying tuition, and so there's a, an understanding of what of that. Um, however, um, you also want to be a, a safe place and, and like a mm-hmm. coach, like you said, and a colleague. But when we have this diversity, then different students can find that person. Mm-hmm. Does that kind of, kind of make sense? Yeah. So I'm guessing um, you're you're. You, I don't know a lot about you, but I read descriptions of your workshops, and we had a nice mm-hmm. conversation the other day about gender and gender mm-hmm. identity, mm-hmm. and. So are you finding that happening, that there's a number of Goddard students who are saying, I am wondering about pronouns. Um, we do that at Goddard. We introduce ourselves by preferred pronoun, which is not not always the case in other places. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's something that we want to show sensitivity to, towards and inclusivity. Mm-hmm. And you represent that. And you're opening that up and saying, let's have conversations about the fluidity of gender. So are you yeah. finding that, that students are coming to you for that? Um, as well as for writing? Um, I actually 
Um, I, I think I have a longer answer to this question, particularly because of my experience as a student. Um, I was part of a generation of Goddard students that um, was really built around political activism, but particularly in the realm of, of gender variance and transness. Um, I showed up on campus in 2008 and found an entire house or entire dorm of trans people, um, which was a tremendous gift. And um, at that time at Goddard, there were no there were no pronoun go arounds. There was no um, there were, the only reason there was trans specific housing on campus was because a trans woman on campus as a student had been um, had been threatened in her in her dorm and felt a need to find housing that was separate and fought for for that housing and Goddard provided it um, and she essentially provided housing for all of us. Um, via that experience. And I now show up back on campus at this point. Um, trans students uh, are able to get trans-specific housing uh, either as, as in a singular, in a single dorm or in uh, a multi in a multi-residency building. Um, there are new policies that afford protections for trans people here on campus. And I know that it is because of the work that those, um, that 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 particular group did, but that particular group did it under the guidance of radical trans women um, who were really working on behalf of all of us to be safe and to be able to have an educational environment that was both supportive and challenging. Um, so now I find that actually there is a network uh, for these students and they weren't necessarily running to me, which I think is a good, is a good thing. Um, you know, it's nice for all of us to just be able to be at school I think I think I think many of us are tired of educating at times while we're trying to do other things. It's also okay and it's important and it is part of my life and I am delighted to be someone who because um because I'm on the masculine spectrum my life is much safer. Um black trans women are the least safe members of our community and by least safe um that actually sounds light it's it's dramatic how unsafe my black trans sisters are um and my trans sisters of color are so i as a person who uh, generally operates in the world as white i have much more safety and so i am honored to be someone who can speak uh, uh, to non-trans people, to cisgender people about these things and to help provide access and education to those folks so that my trans sisters, and again, particularly my trans sisters of color, are safe. Um, so, you know, even, <clears throat> even here at Goddard, I do find that, of course, that is still an area that we can grow, but um, I was impressed that that things have have grown um, and that again my students weren't necessarily like running to me yeah that's uh, thank you for that history yeah. um, I think each program has a little bit different of a history and uh, oh that's and, absolutely and some true. programs have great a greater need for um, to bring in more diversity yeah um, and so uh, that's that was wonderful to hear and um, I'm also wondering, and maybe I'm just thinking about my own experience as a as a teacher and as a school principal, where I was navigating these varying levels of power in schools, and the long and winding road to my own story of being able to share well that I'm a lesbian, which may sound kind of archaic at this point, but <laughs> um, it wasn't that long ago when you know, as proud and as brave as I was, I there wasn't any space where I was working to bring that story up. Mm -hmm. um, 
And and then if it was brought up, the consequences were pretty significant, mm-hmm. like job loss and court battles and things like that. Um, so what I found was that students, it, it wasn't so much that they might be running to me, but they found they sometimes would just want to stand next right. to me. Right, right. <laughs> you know, just to be, just to just to actually, um, yeah, just to kind of to, to stand next to me and, right. and, and feel like, wow, if, uh, if this person could, can do this, maybe I can do it too. True. So I was thinking about the role modeling that mm-hmm. I, I'm guessing maybe that you provide for people who might be they're questioning or just the openness to having more conversations about writing and how you bring in um, uh, all this fluidity around gender as you as you were starting to describe at the beginning that I, I, I picked up a little bit in Ghost Box and I think if I if I were to now reread it after mm-hmm. having this conversation mm-hmm. I would find more. But th- wondering about that part, about the part of you that as a faculty writing teacher slash coach, mm-hmm. instructor, mm-hmm. guide, h- how do you bring people to articulate their own you know, deconstruction of gender. Does that, mm. if, that if that's what they, because there's, you know, there's, there's, it's a growing genre. You're, you're right. People are wanting to say, I want to, I want to talk about, about that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You're a role model for that as well as a role model for living it. Mm-hmm. Does that yeah, make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, I think it's, it's really complex. I, I really like the definition. There's a, there's a woman, um, uh, a trans woman writer and thinker, Trish Sala. And she says, um, that, you know, trans literature is, is varied and complex, um, which I agree. So it's, it's, um, it's not one thing. And I, I would, it would be, it's challenging to, um, to teach maybe, uh, a mode in which, uh, maybe I guess a formula for for writing like that. I don't I don't know of that. I, I wouldn't know how to engage that way. But um, I guess I I guess I have yet to have a student who wants to write about write from the lens of trans literature yet. I have not encountered a student doing that. But I do involve myself in that in that writing community pretty f- regularly. Um, and so what I hope to bring to Goddard or anywhere else that I'm working is all those resources. Mm-hmm. So a big giant reading list, um, a wonderful, um, uh, an immense, uh, history of practice. Um, Carrie Edwards is one of the, is one of the sort of seminal trans poets. Um, and you know, bringing those kinds of voices into the classroom, I think is exciting and mm-hmm. important, but you know, um, <clears throat> in the realm of writing in general, that, um, it's, it's, it's an experiment. I hope, I hope that my writing is an experiment and I hope that my classes are, a, are a laboratory basically. Um, I like to in, investigate new ways of writing and new ways of makership. So, um, what, one of the things that's really exciting for me about the idea of trans literature is that, um, you know, trans people that are experimenting with language actually have the capacity to make new forms and to um, make new genders, for example. Um, actually, we often think of maybe that we would need to have the new gender and then we could have the language for it, but rather there is an argument that it could go the other way around. So we make the new language and the new gender exists there. Um, 
I think that's an interesting way to think about this kind of writing. But, you know, there's a lot of definitions of trans literature. So one of the definitions of it is that it has to be written by trans people for trans people. I don't know if that's true. Another definition is that it is uh, literature of becoming. I don't know if that's true either. Another definition of it is that it is a literature that um, is comfortable in middle space. Hmm. I don't know if that's true either. Um, or at least is exploring it, open for to sure. it. Yeah. I think I think all of this is true, really. So, um, in some ways, but we're it's a new thing. So we're kind of it's 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 in a burgeoning and emergent process, and I'm excited to be part of it. And and it's an it's a newly defined thing, and it's it's of course I mean in, it's been around forever. We just haven't identified it as right. Such. And <laughs> that's and I kind of want to explore. Do you do you find yourself thinking about? other unexplored undiscovered realms of of otherness in in those in-between spaces like yeah. as as Carla was was saying um maybe 10 years ago just coming out of the closet as gay or lesbian had consequences and now it's kind of passe well with our new supreme court in the making maybe that, not we may have an opportunity to revisit back. that right <laughs> but uh, are, like the other possibilities of of the expanding closet the expanding um, liminal spaces the that we're just discovering that people that we're still keeping in the closet that we don't even know that there's a possibility of, of coming out because we haven't even really identified it yet we're mm. probably living in a state of shame about it that an undiscovered dark place mm. um do you do you talk about that do you have students that come to you writing about things like that um talking about that? well i guess i guess i want to just take a second and just push on the idea of the passe of, of coming out um especially for maybe cisgender gay and lesbian people um i would say that in a lot of uh, in a in a great number of places in the country but also in the world it's still very unsafe oh yeah so absolutely. in an urban environment um yes it can be it can seem like yeah there's no there's no issues in in those areas and everyone's fine but you know most um most teens that are houseless or homeless are are kicked out at this point um even in urban areas uh because they were they came out as lgbtq in some area so um you know there's still, it's still not, I guess I wouldn't say that it's, um, it's totally, it's totally over. Definitely um, not. Definitely and, not. and I would also say that, you know, as, as groups garner visibility, one of the really fascinating things to me about visibility and access is that, you know, um, for example, now there's TV where there are trans people on TV and, you know, transparent is an example. And there are many other examples. Um, Laverde Cox is someone who's, um, gained a lot of visibility, uh, in, in television for her roles on Orange is the New Black and some other shows, um, as a trans woman. Uh, but, but one of the things that I do find is interesting about visibility is that often it does provide access for some of the community and it does maybe provide safety for some of the community, but there's a whole nother subset of the community that has actually weirdly seems to be made more unsafe because of that visibility. So, because now, um, you know, there, are, there's a language it, when we create a language for a group, we actually inevitably create a language that can be pejorative too. So suddenly 
and flesh that out. Be be specific about exactly what you're referring to. In which way? In in every way, because I'm I'm not even I'm not connecting with what uh, you're referring to. So um, so I guess I'm talking about visibility of marginalized communities in general. Specific ones, because you you said that as some come out, it threatens others. No, that's not. I guess that's not what I'm saying. I'm, I guess I'm saying that um, it's not about coming out. It's about visibility or in visibility. a larger culture. Okay, that's, so that's what and I mean. pop culture visibility specifically. So like you know, I'm mentioning television. Um, those TV shows provide a pop culture visibility, and it usually there's a narrative around that pop culture visibility. So generally, the narrative is if you are passing, meaning if you, especially in the realm of transness, if you are a person who's passing as one gender or the other, meaning a person might not know that you're a trans because you're passing, um, quote unquote, that. You okay, so part of the narrative is yes, you're passing, great. Um, and that usually that entity can ascribe to the more um, uh, socially acceptable aspects of society. So maybe that means capitalism, consumerism, um, uh, all of those aspects that we identify as making up a successful American, for example, because because I'm only talking about Western Fitting culture. in the box, yeah. And so when visibility comes through those areas, um, it makes it actually more challenging often for those people who fit into the category potentially because trans is an umbrella term uh, that doesn't necessarily mean a man moving to a woman or a woman moving to a man. It actually means all of the things in between that um, it actually becomes less safe for those people who do not ascribe to the binary potentially, who are not pr uh, protected by capitalism. Maybe they are disenfranchised in a number of ways, racially um, and uh, socially and class-wise. So um, there are consequences to visibility. I don't think that it's, I think it's, I just think that it's an important conversation to have. Okay, now I get it. Yeah, I was really thrown for a loop no, It's there. a very, it's a, an incredibly slippery slope. I mean, when I was sharing a bit about my past and how that's changed, um, I was just giving the example of some of the, a little bit of a greater ease that, you know, I might have, you know, I'm here at Goddard, my program, half of us are lesbians, so there's mm -hmm. other, le so it's no longer, you know, where, where, you know, 30 years ago, an English teacher in an urban <coughs> high school, I didn't tell anybody. Right. Uh, somewhere in between, I was a um, professor at the university in uh, at the University of Colorado in Denver at an education um, and the very la and I don't like using my own published pieces as part of the text, but I wrote a piece about being a, uh, a lesbian principal and my experience with a, pr a pretty um, out what uh, lesbian student who was um, um, angry and somewhat violent and you know what one would call a problem child and I was the lesbian principal trying to control her and there's part of me that was feeling like I wanted her to become invisible I was and all this was this this fight inside of me like here I wanted her to go away and become invisible this wasn't I mean this was not an outward conversation but inside because she was so angry and so violent um, and yet it, it was very personal too and so anyway so I wrote this this piece and I decided to share it the last day of class and um, my students read it, and they were so upset with me. They were angry with me. I, and then, and, and because I had not told them, 
Mm. I was a lesbian. Mm. And so for them, I was li- I had lied. Mm. And they were they were actually they were right. Mm. So on her I thought I was like, you know, I've had this great relationship with you over the semester. I didn't say I wasn't a lesbian, but so I don't so it's I guess I'm telling the stories that everyone has a story and it's a slippery slope about your your own visibility. Right. So here it is, you know, 2017 living in progressive Vermont. You know, I walk into a place that services my car of people who I really, really like and respect um, with bumper stickers that say straight from Vermont. Mm-hmm. So I know that's that's a mm. that's a message to me. We don't like gay people mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's really important that we say that we're straight. So oh, wow. but I like I like these people and I know that they like me and they probably like the fact that I give them a lot of money because I actually have three vehicles. <laughs> They're all used. So they break down a lot. <laughs> So I'm just these these scenarios are still I think what I think you're saying is that it's I'm still in at my age after all this and all the laws and and progressive Vermont I still have to navigate it all the time right every second this is a moment when I look at that that I I have to not say anything like you know I don't have to, I can't tell a story about my life that's personal um, I then have to portray as the straight woman that they probably want me to be and think I am. So anyway, so then the flip side of all of that is the, when you really look at um, what I think we, you know, my, my generation may have termed more as gender bending. Mm -hmm. We can now call, you know, the the beauty of gender bending. Like, I love it. It was like, I don't know Mm -hmm. what gender that person is. It's like, I love that. Like, because Jeanette Winterson, who's one of my favorite writers written on the body, one of my favorite books. Yeah. Do you know about the... Yes. So, so Written on the Body is, is a sto- beautiful, beautiful story. First of all, Jan- Jeanette Winterson is a magnificent writer. She really is. Oh, my goodness. And an entire book without the use of one pronoun. So I'm reading it and going, like, oh, this is a story about a man. Oh, no, this is a story about a woman. No, this is a story about a man. This is a story. So then the story mm-hmm. is not about anything in the book. It's about me and mm-hmm. my own navigation. Right. And then, um, so, so with all of that, that said, Emerson, what, what you are now a faculty, I'm going to keep, you're, no, you're a great. teacher. What, <laughs> what do you want you? I, I, maybe I'm, you can challenge me on this. We come in with agendas. When I go in uh, and as a faculty member, I want to manipulate the students. I do. Uh-huh. I want them to be different. Mm. I do. One of the things I want, I want them to leave my presence with a stronger voice. Like I want right. them to leave my strength, my my presence with a stronger voice to go out in the world and say, "This is who I am." Right. So I won't lie to you about that. I want them to change. Mm-hmm. Not that they don't come in with a, a strength of voice, but I, if anything, stronger or more defined, or or more dreamy, mm-hmm. or more connected to words or something. But there's, yeah. there's an agenda there. More empowered to express who yeah. they really are. Yeah, I do. And and I want to go back to what you said earlier about. Um, Everything being about us, no matter how we... Reality is when it happens to you. <laughs> that one? Or, no, not that. Oh. But what, what you just said, uh-huh. you, you were reading um, the writing of that person who... Oh, Jeanette. Who, oh, yeah. Who you yeah. couldn't tell whether they were... Yeah. And that you were just bringing your own stuff to it. Yeah, because it really... But we do that no matter how we... Totally. We look at things. And how we think we're seeing things, but whether we're aware of it or not, like right. yeah, the beauty of right. the, the magic and brilliance of Jeanette Winterson is that she successfully did that with her readers. Like 
Very, very rare is the reader that goes, oh, I get this. Somewhere in the middle, you're kind of go, oh, this isn't really about this story at all. Right. It's really about my own need, my own need to make sure that it's a man or a woman. Right. Really, so so to become really comfortable, become conscious mm-hmm. and comfortable, well, maybe not necessarily comfortable, but I guess you become, you'd be able to, com- able to contain ambiguity. Yes, a, for sure. A, a, bro- a much broader space of ambiguity absolutely absolutely and to and to sit in the discomfort of that yes that's one of the that's one of because it takes time yeah absolutely it, it really does. it takes time it takes a, a long time and resilience i think in especially for folks that aren't used to being uncomfortable um very regularly mm-hmm. um that it's actually wonderful when people can uh sit in the discomfort and not try to change it not try to assimilate it and, and and admit all of the ways we misunderstand things and get things wrong because it was funny because we were having a conversation in the library a couple of days ago with Karen Werner and we were talking about you oh, nice. and and very inadvertently unconsciously twice I referred to you as her mm-hmm. as she mm-hmm. and and each time I was like whoa we had to keep raining him I was like. <laughs> Well, I keep doing that. Yeah. And because I look at you and in an embodied sense, I sense a, a more feminine energy mm-hmm. and appearance. Sure. So this whole thing about um, gender, transgender mm-hmm. stuff, it's, it's really, it's an interesting quandary in terms of how you put into words and, and the use of pronouns. I personally don't like using right. pronouns at all because I often find myself stepping in it or or just feeling like I'm being misrepresented hmm. because people, we all make assumptions because we all use those terms in our own, from our own story, mm. from our own perspective. Yeah, um, I would say that, that I'm, this is actually kind of fun for me because I have these kind of uncomfortable interactions all the time, but not regularly on the air. So it's kind of nice (laughs) to do this um, with you on the radio, um, which is to say that um, um, hmm. I would say that different genders are projected onto my body with regularity that has nothing to do with me. And so your projection of femininity onto me actually has nothing to do with me. Right. And it's that has everything to do with you. Right. And so it's your job to actually dismantle that. Right. And I'm asking you Be to do with so. It. Yeah. Well, and to just dismantle it. Well, meaning it, I think it, it naturally dismantles itself when you're present with it. Maybe. 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 Yeah. And I think, I don't know, because I don't have to do that dismantling. I think it, um, because it's already happened for me in a deep and cellular way that it doesn't it it doesn't catch very regularly i have trans friends who have um changed genders over the course of our over the time of our friendship and um and so yeah there is a moment of relearning and often one of the suggestions i give people if they are encountering a person of ambiguous gender or ethnicity or any or anything really um to just slow down and to maybe not um put the onus onto them uh, it's nice if we can take responsibility for our own discomfort and our confusion. And the best thing to do is just to be like, what pronouns do you prefer? And then to just slow down. Yeah. Um, often, often I make a mistake in the realm of the pronoun if I'm going too fast. And then you're right. There is a level. There is an element of presence there um, that is necessary. 
uh, for us. And that um, takes slowing down. I think so. At, at least, least in my initially. own life. Yeah. Least, yeah. In my own life, I recognize that if I'm going slower when I'm speaking, this is not as much of an issue. Um, and also if I'm being conscious, I truly, I truly choose to see the person the way they want to be seen. And it's a conscious choice. And it's, it actually is really easy. Um, I think what often happens is in my mind, just like with anything else, any marginalized identity, I bring with myself a web of patterning and privilege that denies me access to their experience. And my job as someone who operates in the world with privilege and access is to undo that. And um, yeah, so slowing down is one of the tools, but also just truly being like, I'm not gonna question this. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do, I'm just going to, see this person the way they're asking that I see them and then and case closed but it's it takes time it it, it's maybe for some people for other people well to deconstruct to deconstruct all all of our past it starts with one moment right exactly so it always starts with one moment just one moment so right right now just slowing down in this moment yes and in yeah just shifting this moment and yeah. this interaction is undoing that history. It's, there's also, right. and, and this right. is, I'll, I'll share my perspective, and you may not agree with That's, this, but I also yeah. think it's strategic. Right? I, so, like when I first met you, I'll, I'll, I'll just go ahead and, and, and uh, deconstruct that moment. Yeah. I looked at you and I said, okay, I, I think that this is a person who I need to ask their pronoun. Mm-hmm. And I'll be very honest with you, it is not because I didn't immediately go to one pronoun or the right. other. It wasn't. Right. I immediately went to another pro, to a mm-hmm. pronoun. Part of it was because um, you, I don't know <coughs> this, you look exactly like, not exactly, but mm-hmm. pretty gosh darn close to someone I know mm-hmm. who's a woman. Mm-hmm. So that's part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was just like, oh, that person looks like this person so Mm -hmm. but that was you know but again i am now deconstructing a moment so these are like thoughts that are like going Mm -hmm. happening a million miles an hour Mm -hmm. and by by actually sharing them it's taking longer to share it than they actually happen Mm -hmm. so there's that happening plus the fact but then simultaneously so i didn't know so what i did my strategy was when i referred to you i referred to you by your name Mm -hmm. that's a great strategy yeah so i just said um i met emerson today great where is emerson so love it and then when i finally so then I did my, then my other strategy was I, I went online. I yeah. said, let me find out what Emerson says about Emerson. Mm-hmm. So I found you on Facebook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can I friend you by the way? Sure. Okay. Um, and then in the Facebook, you referred to yourself, I thought as they. Yeah. I think I did. Yes. Yeah. So then I thought, okay. So, but I thought I, then I think I told you that I, then I mentioned it. Then I decided to be really, you know, impressive in the Goddard community and use the, mm-hmm. <laughs> then I was corrected that it was he. Mm-hmm. So I said, wait a minute, I've done my research. <laughs> like, I'll ask. Yeah. So part of my That's strategy great. is um, to honor the fact that I did go to a certain direction for a whole bunch of reasons and mm-hmm. not to feel shameful about it or stupid about it or whatever, because right. it was just, whether it's conditioning or because it was something as, I don't want to say simple, but something, because you just simply reminded me of, if you had reminded me of, of, of a man that I knew, then I would probably gone to heat, honestly. So, Truly. so part of it was just my own personal history and your, and your physical characteristics. Yep. And so, um, so the strategy that I use is I, I try to remember to slow down, um, and I try to remember to ask, 
And I try to remember, always question my assumptions mm -hmm. all at the same time. Yeah. And it is a lot of work and it isn't your job. Right. It's right. only my job. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I appreciate that. And, and I go back to a moment on my show that I really appreciated when I didn't slow down because <laughs> I was being such a, it was so funny. But anyway, there was, um, Katiriana came in, you know, Katiriana, mm -hmm. she came in yeah. with, with, um, with a, with a, what I perceived as a young man. Mm -hmm. And, um, like, really, I mean, it was like really handsome young man. Mm -hmm. And so he started to, and it, they just walked in the studio during the show. So mm -hmm. I, and he was talking and I was just saying, and I just, and sometimes just do this because I'm thinking it, I said, you're really a, a very handsome young man. And I was interviewing Harukati at that time. Mm -hmm. And Harukati said, well, you're making an assumption that this is a young man. I said, you're absolutely right. So the, the cool thing of that whole interaction right. is on the radio, we got to, to have this little lesson, which right. I sort of knew about, but made a mistake. Well, turned out that he was a young man and he did say he was a man, but, but that right. was irrelevant. The point was, is that right. I didn't need to assume that. And it was also that he was a model. So totally. Was, well, there you go. Was, so anyway, that I got bailed out slightly, but not enough to, to not have to go back and say, you know, right here on the radio, this is a moment yeah. that we're deconstructing. Yeah. So I think... <laughs> and hum humility is a wonderful thing. It is. And that's that was the other thing that I was going to mention. That, and I when I read... And I don't want to make light of it because when it's your reality, and I can claim some of it... I mean, we can all claim to be those floating clouds in the sky, right? Sure. There, there's a great fluidity. And, and it's beautiful and it's also potentially extremely painful. So yes. I don't want to make light of it. And dangerous. And very dangerous. Yes. Very dangerous. And it's dangerous. Yeah. It's very dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, however, I have to tell you that when I figured out what Jeanette Winterson was doing to me and written on the body, this is many years ago because it was one of the books mm -hmm. for me, I actually laughed out loud at myself. Right. So I think having a little bit of humor around it towards yourself helps because we are, we are, we're, 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 you know, we, we are socially constructed human beings. Right. Uh, plus, then our families come in and um, and do all kinds of. And I tell my my own children that you know that I, I, they just need to know that I'll I'll put some money aside for the therapy because not not for percent <laughs> they can get student loans for college, but you know I did a lot of damage as their mother. So that's our job as parents is to really you know mess up our kids a little bit. Huh, yeah. So and then maybe hopefully live long enough to keep a relationship going. So we're we're done learning all kinds of things, don't totally. you? Absolutely. And yeah. I think I think this idea of resilience is really important. So like if if one does make some something that we could we would consider a mistake, um, that could hopefully turn into a learning experience if we're resilient. So rather than, you know, I've had people um, you know, uh, use a use a pronoun for me that I would not prefer and and they they would they cried <laughs> you know or they like <laughs> ran out of the room and um those are not maybe the ways I would suggest navigating that that experience of of quote-unquote failure you know I think it's much more uh tremendous if we can all uh actually bounce back especially those of us that are in the dominant position at whatever moment sometimes I'm in the dominant position and I make a mistake um I did just the other day uh where I I recognized that uh, there was a there was a racialized in, there was a way that someone spoke about race that made me uncomfortable and rather than um rather than saying it at that moment I sort of just sat in the discomfort of it, but I didn't say anything. And now I know it would, it would have been a really wonderful thing for me to do to say something in that moment. So I've, I now had to retroactively go back and say something, which, you know, I don't know if we would consider that a mistake or not, but I do know that for me, rather than feeling shame or guilt or something that would shut me down as someone who's dedicated to, um, you know, working toward 
you know, freedom for all of us that I get back up and I say, no, it's not too late. I'll send, I'll say something. You're staying engaged. Yeah. And I love this conversation and that, and I, I knew we were going to go here and that's why I was so excited to have you on the show. Because mm-hmm. when I, when I first met you, he, when you came to visit, see mm-hmm. us at, at the end of her show, mm-hmm. my sense was, I sensed you right in the middle. Mm-hmm, probably. And, I'm, and I've known enough people who are pretty much right in the middle that you just can't tell. Mm-hmm. And I was, I've been called a girl when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. So I know, I know that in-between space mm-hmm. and also misrepresentation mm-hmm. and the shame that can go with it and also the frustration of being pegged whether you're conscious of it or not. Mm-hmm. And I, I just find this whole thing fascinating. I, I love that there's, there's a coherent conversation mm-hmm. and awareness of it now. Mm-hmm. And, and it just makes me think of the infinite possibilities of where this can go for so many other people who exist in these in-between places but don't, don't have any awareness of it, don't have any visibility, don't have any quarter. Mm-hmm. So, so now that we've taken sort of a, a little roundabout mm-hmm. back to that question. So, what's your agenda as it, with all that you you stand and believe and represent and who you are that and you have the, and the parts of you that you haven't shared yet? Um, what, what would you like to make sure your students have because they know you? I'm I'm invested in critical engagement. So I'm actually not invested in a particular political agenda um, because I do find that that's actually especially where I, I teach outside of Goddard is, is, um, is not really my job. So, and also is defeating because the truth is, I don't know. I mean, I can sit here and talk into this mic all day about the things that I think and feel, but I'm not speaking for all trans people, nor do I know that much. You know, I know, I know some, but I'm still growing and learning as a person. So what do I know? You know, I, I, all I know is that, um, I hope to be engaged in the muck of learning with, other people for the rest of my life. Um, and as an educator, I, the, what I want to give students is the tools to have a, have a critical conversation. That's really what I want. Um, is that, you know, we, we are art makers and thinkers and writers, um, which is so wonderful. It's wonderful to consider craft and the ways that we can explore form and content and the ways in which we can explore um, getting our uh, writing to dance in the ways that we hope it does. All those things are great. And I think um, I think in the realm of literary citizenship pretty regularly. So what does it mean to be a maker in the world and a writer in the world with all of the complicated natures of our identities and experiences? And what are the ways in which we can critically engage those things? Um, how can I be how can I be um, an engaged literary citizen that is also capable of considering the ramifications of my work in the world? Mm-hmm. Those are those things that I really hope to engage. And speaking of all those wonderful things, this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. My guest in the studio is Emerson Whitney and Carla Haas Moskowitz. Well, I, of course, am very excited about your desire because... I went.